Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes. I am your host. Today we are talking with John John Johnson. John John is a production recruiter for the public theater, a director, dramaturg, musician, EDI consultant, and facilitator. On top of all of those hats, they are also a professional tabletop gaming GM, a Pokemon master, and a general gaming enthusiast. John John is excited by weird rocks and interesting people, and his hobbies include daydreaming what their next hobby will be before they monetize it to exist in a capitalist hellscape. John John is here with us today to talk about how the Shakespeare industry and the theater industry at large can do better by AAPI communities. We had an excellent conversation. I am so excited to share it with you. But first, as always, I got a little high and John John did not because he was so kind as to have this conversation while he was on his break from work. back and we are talking about the plague with John John Johnson. John John, what were the highlights of your quarantines? I think the first thing I noted was that it was a chance to breathe again. I know it doesn't fit well with the description of Rona, uh, but like <laughs> I, I've had an entire year of theater work booked and when that all went away, I suddenly stopped for the first time and I was like, oh, this is what it's like to breathe. Uh, so I think the really some of the biggest highlights of the quarantines were like investing in therapy once that emergency healthcare came around and like taking the shift to go from like investing in my career to investing in myself and making sure that my instrument was maintained. And I think that was the, like the high, I say it's a highlight because I think it served me all the way up to now post lockdown into the weird stages of transition from pandemic to endemic. So like that those that investment has really, really bloomed and blossomed. So I think that's the biggest highlight was breathing and investing in myself. That is a vibe. I know right before the pandemic started, I like doubled up on classes and was in a show at the same time. And about a month in, I was like, whoa, I don't think I sh I'm supposed to, but I feel better than I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it felt like guilt, right? It felt like, oh, I feel guilty for not hustling in time when I cannot hustle. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. And definitely also a little guilt of like, huh, this time is unprecedented and probably isn't supposed to feel good, but right. It does but, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely that. I think that was one of the big highlights. I think uh uh also just like I don't know, taking time taking time it, it suddenly felt like time was really precious and so I've been much more protective and guarding of it in in post-lockdown times definitely definitely I've noticed that even though I haven't done a ton uh since we came out of it the little bit that I do I come home and I'm like woof I'm exhausted <laughs> like mm -hmm. Holy cow, which, yeah, it really does make you think about where you really want to spend that time, for sure. Yeah, I think I did I think I did an engagement that lasted like two weeks, and I was like, oh, I'm done. 
it was like oh remember when we used to go months on end and being like yeah i got this i got this no time to rest and now i'm like oh i did like half an hour worth of work i'm ready for a nap yeah i don't know how we all ran like that before the pandemic it seems to be a common theme that nobody can anymore uh (laughs) so yeah it's uh it's interesting that we we used to do the go 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 and not notice it so much do you have any other highlights you would like to discuss or shall we dive into the the depths of the the more important conversation we're here to have today i mean no i think that was the main one you know a lot of a lot of tabletop gaming with friends and a lot of investment Ooh. in online communities but that was really cool too yeah, 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 I I agree. Oh, you want to talk a little bit more about what tabletop games you play? Oh, sure. So I I'm a professional dungeon master for D and D. So uh, some people will hire me to run campaigns and one shots for them. But uh, so D and D being the big one, but I'd also run a bunch of masks, a new generation games for teen superheroes, uh, Ryutama, mm-hmm. which is like mm-hmm. what if Studio Ghibli wrote the Oregon Trail uh wander home which is a really cozy like what if the redwall creatures uh like were ttrbd uh a bunch of like fun escapism to worlds with more different problems than the ones we were facing um which is always we love that escapism and immersion that was that was a lot of fun and uh yeah between like home group campaigns and paid campaigns like it's really what it did was it really scratched a lot of the creative itches that theater would normally scratch for me in terms of like world building and collaborative storytelling and so that was that was a big highlight just being able to to engage in that with so many people oh hell yeah yeah and I bet that's a nice way to like engage with community a little bit while we were far away yeah exactly that's so cool I play I don't Jonathan and I both (laughs) really want to get into Dungeons and Dragons but we haven't we played some tabletop games over the pandemic we got into horrified Ooh. yeah which is just like kind of the iconic monsters like frankenstein dracula um and you're like teaming up to to defeat as many of them as you decide um and then betrayal was another one we played oh like betrayal of the house of haunted hill yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah we started that was fun yeah, that that's great. We started that like the regular version, and then we started the legacy version with uh, a couple of friends. So now every time we visit them in Pennsylvania, we like play a round or two, which is super fun. Oh, that is really fun. Well, if y'all are interested in, in Dungeons and Dragons, let me know. I have like a drop-in game on some weekends that people can sign up for. I'm good. Can okay. run newbie sessions, etc. Anything you need. But that's that's literally my job now. That's really cool and really good to know because we're both beginners, but would yeah. love to get involved. Speaking of kind of finding community, this uh, this whole season of Bulls with the Bard is kind of rooted in community and how we can make the Shakespeare industry a more community-based place to work. So with that in mind, with you, I'm interested in talking about like how the Shakespeare industry is falling short for AAPI communities and how we could do better by them. Yeah, so I think I think it's a sadly relevant conversation, especially with the announcement that K-pop is closing on Broadway. 
especially after getting that really terrible review from that New York Times critic. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think there is this sort of overall connection between the fact that like Shakespeare's theater and kind of leads on the forefront, which is like one of the reasons why I think working at the public theater right now as I am is so important because, you know, we have the Shakespeare for all and the park Shakespeare in the park, which is like free tickets at the Delacorte theater. And, um, and I, I, they are very diverse in their casting, which has been really lovely. Like I think Richard, you know, we just did Richard the third with Danai Guerrera uh, mm-hmm. in the lead role, uh, which made a lot of interesting statements, but like, you know, don't want to dig into that too much right now. Um, but we also did the Shana Tobb musical adaptation of As You Like It, which is also like very diversely cast typically. Um, but I remember seeing both and being like, there's not a lot of Asians here. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of very well-deserved like black folk and Latine folk and like, uh, but like not a lot of Asian like or indigenous like uh, or even Middle Eastern like representation. And I think, I wonder how much of that comes from you know, going back to uh, Shakespeare, right? Like, and going back to that, how Shakespeare has led and shaped this industry for so long, especially because, you know, like we don't pay rights for it most of the time, mm-hmm. right? So they're very easy shows to do. And this, I tell the story a lot, so I'm sure people who know me are sick of it, but like, I once auditioned for the Scottish play. No, no, sorry, the Danish play. I once auditioned for Hamlet. And I remember being told I just don't see why an Asian person would be in Denmark. Oh. Right? And I was like, well, that makes no sense to me, right? And then I wound up being cast in a production of the Mikado, where I was one of, like, three Asian people in Japan. So, like, it's, I, I noted immediately that there's always this double standard when it comes to Asians. And um, so in terms of Shakespeare in particular unless there's like an Asian spin on it, you don't really see Asian people in Shakespeare. Like you and I both did the uh, all Asian Richard III with Bunraku puppetry, right? And mm-hmm. like, you know, it was, I, I appreciate the Federal Theater Project's commitment to casting Asian people in the vocal roles. You know, I really do appreciate that. Um, but it, it also does speak to that sort of endemic problem where it's like, you don't consider Asians in Shakespeare unless it's specifically an Asian production. And then on the overall with the, you know, we are still struggling occasionally with bits of yellow face and orientalism. Like it's not unless someone's like, we're doing samurai mackers. And then, and then they don't even consider Asian people. Uh, you get a lot of non-Asians in doing Bushido and it's like this, what with katanas? And I'm like, okay. So there is a little bit of how, like, how Asian culture is often appropriated. There is a lot of, again, that orientalism, you know, and even it gets a little worse nowadays with the advent of like, you know, the widespread popularity of anime, which is really, really cool on the one hand. And like, there is a particular fascinating intersection where like, Asian people don't give a shit. They're just kind of like, hey, it's really cool that our culture is being represented. It doesn't matter by whom. But then Asian Americans are the ones who get the shaft, right? So like I, I think a lot about that, that constellation theater, uh, constellation theater's journey to the West. You know where they had mm-hmm. a lot of white people in there, and I remember being told that well the Chinese embassy loved it, 
And I was like, well, yeah, they're Chinese people. They're not Asian Americans. Asian working Asian Americans in theater aren't going to get aren't going to be happy with this because you have completely whitewashed us out. And every time an Asian show gets whitewashed like that, or every time they take an Asian concept and slam it into Shakespeare, you get a lot of people who will be like, well, white people can still do it, you know, or we're casting multiculturally and Asians get erased in the picture every time. So the Shakespeare industry continually fails Asian performers because we are only ever called in for Asian shows. I've never been called in to direct a Shakespeare. You know? How? I don't know. Because that's, I'm Asian, I guess, you know? Mm, it's like, that's ridiculous. It's like, I've directed classics. I got called in to direct uh, something for Brave Spirits. We did Edward II virtually, you know? But, like, still, I still don't have any Shakespeare on my resume as a director. And I don't know how to get it because no one is calling me. No one is even considering me for it. You know what I mean? So how do I break into that? sacred sphere that is Shakespeare um so I think that's what it is is we we as a as an industry and as a community tend to hold Shakespeare really sacrosanct and we were we are we require that skill gate you know like we, we need people who have studied Shakespeare who understand the scansion who understand you know who understand the mathematics of Shakespeare who have studied it and really love it um but like at the same time then you are screening out a bunch of applicants of color in general you know, and then there's also like the relatively social concept of it as well, where it's like, you know, let's look at critical race theory, you know, but, the thing that we all defend, but most of us haven't read because mm -hmm. why should we? Uh, but like one of the things it says is that, you know, race in America is black and white. Everyone else is kind of just caught in the middle. And so I think, for instance, D.C. has done an amazing job maybe not an amazing but like a better job of like <laughs> highlighting black performers and black artists they've done and there are theaters like dedicated to that you know and and really bringing in black performers and highlighting them and giving the spotlight which is so well deserved um but you know when people think diversity they think of let's add a black person to the cast you know and like that's also because asian folks fall on both sides of the spectrum as well. You know what I mean? Like several, there are several Asian people who really embrace white supremacy, you know, while rejecting the model minority myth, like a lot of Asians embrace it because they're like, well, you know, this is how I maintain a semblance of power and privilege is by embracing it. And so like, you know, I have so many conversations about like how do Asian and black communities, how do Asian and other BIPOC communities show up in solidarity for one another, you know? Um, so, it's not just Shakespeare. The entire industry is always, I think, always, always, always falling short on Asians and Asian representation. And then, you know, when we do get a notable Asian American, such as Sarah Porkalob, you know, who will then speak the truth to power of the situations that they're in, they get shit on. Yep. yep. You know, so it's like, well, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. We're damned if we speak up. We're damned if we stay quiet. There's really nothing we can do to change the industry and then like Asian specific theater companies there are so few of them you know that it's like well where where is it you know where's the representation and then again so much whitewashing so much so much gatekeeping and whitewashing has kept Asians out of the industry and on top of it we kind of gatekeep ourselves you know like I had there's not old world mentality you know but the number of parents Asian parents you know the tiger mom saying is like you need to be a doctor or a lawyer Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. there's just a lot there's not a lot of emphasis on the arts as anything other than to help you get into college 
Hmm. And so arts as a career is not often taught as a viable thing for, for Asian Americans, I think, or especially like earlier generation. I think it's changing now. But like, I used to say like, I'm going to go into the arts as a threat. And then I did. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, so yeah, I think there's there's just this multitude of things that keep the where we're in we as a community gatekeep ourselves from entering the arts from the get-go. And then when we get here, it requires such a tenacity to stay in the industry that just doesn't understand what to do with you. You know what I also remember is, um, this is a really weird thing I noticed, is that at the time when I was in DC, a lot of white casting directors, I think, don't think Asian voices are very expressive. Huh. Um, because especially those of us who speak other languages. So like, for instance, like I have trained myself to be a little more vocally expressive in the way I speak because of that. But like the way in which we tonally and sonically speak is, and the way we emphasize things can be a little different sometimes. And I think casting directors don't understand that it is express. It is just as expressive, but perhaps not in the same subtle ways that we're used to white people being expressive. So there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance and really like small details hidden in there as well that is like we have so many barriers to break through, you know, in the same way that it's like this actor might sound too black or not black enough, or this actor might sound too like too Hispanic sounding or not Hispanic sounding enough, you know, it depends on I know I'm rambling, but I remember auditioning for a show that they really wanted Asian people to be in. And I read the script and audition during the audition, I was like, this is offensive. Hmm. And I wrote them and I was like, this is offensive and I don't want to be part of it. And they wrote back and they were like, well, you can really help us like call that out and police it and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, are you going to pay me extra for that? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's theater. We don't have the budgets to do that half the time at the indie level. So it's like, well, what do you expect you ex- basically you're expecting me to do free labor to keep you from offending me and like causing more microaggressions to myself and others in my community like you know there are no asian characters in shakespeare no like, not explicitly for the lo- yeah you know and there was like there's like one black character in all of shakespeare and like you can maybe like reframe some of the spanish characters as latine but like even then there are just there is one explicit person of color in all of shakespeare which is why shakespeare is such a difficult thing for people to break into because very specifically old guard white folks have been like well you know i don't see an asian person in denmark no matter where they said it they don't give a shit you know (laughs) but that and so as a result, there is no imagination to see those roles as anything other than they are most of the time, which is like these white people saying what they consider, you know, English or Victorian English, which therefore was white, which is false because there were people of color existing in Europe at the time and in England at the time. Exactly. And so, yeah, so it's it's a it's been a rewriting of history to gatekeep and ostracize us, and you know it's it's all internalized white supremacy. I don't think any one person was like wah 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 let me <laughs> let me like oppress these people. No, it's just they have they have been taught that that justification is correct. That you know white people do English better, right? That white people do poetry better, etc. No, and that's yeah, it's ridiculous. I so much of what you just said resonates with me. I. I think a couple episodes back, um, Katie Bogdan was on mm. and she was talking about uh, like body diversity. Um, and as she talked about it, she was like, 
look so few of these characters explicitly have descriptions of what they look like yeah. like we just assume that they're white because that's how we've seen it done over and over and over again but that's that doesn't actually have to be there and if you can be creative enough to figure out like what Titania and Oberon look like in a forest full of fairies then like an Asian person can be in Denmark yeah <laughs> like but that's you know we look at Lord of the Rings right where it's like oh you believe in elves but not black people right <laughs> like yeah yep. and anytime it's you know, anytime nowadays where we try to insert a person of color in there, probably for the sake of diversity and representation, the big pushback is like, oh, it's such woke bullshit, you know, and it's, what are we going to do? How, like, because the answer is yes, it's woke bullshit. It's woke bullshit because it hasn't been done for so long. It's bullshit because we have normalized the actual bullshit that yep. any deviance from that feels like it's outrageous. Yep. Yep. I, I was about to say it's it's woke bullshit because you don't have anyone you care about around you that it yeah. impacts so you can just be angry can, about it. You can write it off. I mean, I'm trying to think of, aside from the R3 we worked on, when the last time I saw an Asian person in a Shakespeare lead was. Ooh. You know, like, I feel like I've seen Liz Ong in a couple of Shakespeare's with, like, the wheel, you know? Yeah. like... And like I see like Andrew Kilpa from time to time on things. Um you know, you know who actually I will say I think Tui Fam, if you know Tui. Mm -mm. Tui I think had a good run as like an ingenue in a lot of Shakespeare's at like Fords and Folders or, or took Folders and uh, Shakespeare a while back, you know, when she turned equity. But like and but like, you know, Regina Aquino doesn't get cast in a lot of Shakespeare. Like and then, you know, even then you look at the body diversity again, because like Tui and Regina are both thin and beautiful, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, we, we, you know, we talk about the body diversity as well. Like, from my own standpoint, as I come in, it's like, I'm a fat Asian. What are you going to cast me as? You know, like I got, I got to play Falstaff one time in high school unofficially, you know, but we also, we didn't do Shakespeare main stages. We did like little side Shakespeare's and I got to do Falstaff one time. And I was like, great, this is maybe the one role I can do because it's the only role in all of Shakespeare that's considered fat. Yep, that that was the exact point Katie Bogdan made. It's like, he's yeah. the only one that you describe that way. But like, does that mean he's the only one? Yeah, well, like maybe the nurse sometimes because she's yep. like a comedic-ish character, yep. you know? And so anytime there's a funny person, they're like, oh, you know what's funny? Fatness. Yep. And so, which is awful. Um, it's also just a lack of creativity in general about how people cast Asians. Yeah, yeah. I think when Liz Ung was on, uh, a big part of what she talked about was, oh God, now I can't remember the word. <laughs> um, when you, uh, tokenization. Um, yeah. How Asians, a lot of the time in Shakespeare are tokenized and are the only one in the room. And something that really like hammered that in for me was trying to fill out the rest of this season um trying to find representation that was indigenous that was aapi that was latine that had enough experience with shakespeare that they could really speak to this issue when i tried to like figure out who I knew that fit those categories I was like oh this list shrinks to like 
10 people who represent four different ethnicities. Like mm-hmm. that's insane having worked in a city like DC that purports to be as diverse as it does. Um it's yeah. uh yeah, DC DC totes rep- like we are so diverse and representative when it really is the same few people working over and over again. Yes. I remember some data point that was like uh this theater company has had like and this was an earlier metric but like we've had like eight women direct shows here isn't that great and I was like well six of them are the same person so like what are you talking about (laughs) you know yeah Um, yeah so it's always like oh we're so diverse and it's like well you cast John John a bunch is that really that diverse no like like... I'm trying to look up my like theatrical resume real quick just to look at the Shakespeare's I've done because there's also a uh there's also a trend I have noticed with my acting resume my the Shakespeare's I've done uh a rude mechanical, Grumio, Touchstone, like it's always a goofy sidekick. Right? Uh huh. Uh huh. And I'm like, all right. So like, I and then I was so excited that one time we got R three because I'm like, oh great, finally I'm not a goofy sidekick. I get to be a villain. How exciting! Well, and it's so interesting too, John John, because even knowing you like loosely, <laughs> like I'm sure you could kill those comedic characters, but that is not where I would automatically go with you if I were casting you in Shakespeare like I feel like you could be so much more powerful somewhere else (laughs) it would be a lot of fun but again it's a lack of creativity and a lot of direct reasons for it because I think a lot of the people who default Shakespeare are not looking to say anything particularly interesting with it if that makes sense they're always looking for a spin on why it's relevant but I don't think anyone says anything really interesting in Shakespeare anymore I agree. I agree. I think some of the like best Shakespeare I've ever seen tried less hard to like throw a time period or a concept on it and and really did focus on like what the the text was saying. Yeah. But it's it's few and far between like those productions that I've been moved by and actually I feel like the production that was most powerful to me was not Shakespeare it was the changeling at mm. brave spirits mm-hmm. like that to me was like the most impactful classical theater I've seen in the last decade in terms of like we wanted to s- what were we saying with it not what what are we doing with it yeah and so many people are like what is my spin on Shakespeare and I don't know like the spins aren't always useful because it's like how much Every time you put a spin on something, how much are you detracting from it, right? Definitely. How much are you like square hole round pegging these Shakespearean concepts into something that it doesn't quite fit into? Yes. I will say, I think the best Shakespeare I saw I've ever seen was an adaptation, a modern adaptation, which is like sacrilegious, which is a, Ah. and it's going, and it's going to Broadway now. Um, But like I saw Fat Ham here at the public, which uh, which is like, what if Hamlet were a queer black man? And what if Hamlet were set in like a, you know, black family barbecue? Oh, fuck yeah. You know? And so it was, all the characters are there, but it's like, and the plot is there. And the main character is also aware of the Shakespearean plot because he's read Hamlet on top of it. But then like, it's all a little different because it's still, there's still the indecision of Hamlet, but because Hamlet is soft, because Hamlet is like, a sensitive queer black boy 
it changes the outcome of the play away from, like from the the way it's supposed to go because it's not about Hamlet trying to be hard anymore. It's not about Hamlet being forced to make the decision. It's a like, and you know, I remember leaving that just being like, oh man, queerness will save us all, right? And that was really moving to see that this was like this is Shakespeare, but it's no longer a tragedy because we have chosen different in our time period, you know? So I think I think there are worlds in which Shakespeare is very, very relevant still. Um, but I I think I am more interested in the modernizations of it, you know? Like this this version of Fat Ham- or this version of Hamlet was very, very moving hmm. to me as a person of color seeing it, you know? Because like, what happens when you remove whiteness from Shakespeare? What happens when you remove the white supremacist aspects of it? What remains? And it's something actually really hilarious and beautiful and funny. I I love that on my TikTok. I've been doing a lot of uh, reflecting on like some of some of the plays that I'm like, do we do we need to still be doing these anymore? Like, do we? Does an all female cast really make Taming of the Shrew better? Like, no, it doesn't. Yeah. And it's just spousal abuse instead of yeah. like, you know, like. But there are exactly what you said like modern adaptations there's tame by i think janelle walker is her name like Mm -hmm. yeah i love janelle yeah it's like there are better versions of these plays that we could be putting up that aren't trying to force them to say something that they're saying literally the opposite of yeah and i i think it's why i think adaptation which is weird adaptation is such an underappreciated art form doubly so because like we're getting all the gritty remakes of our childhood favorites right so like (laughs) so adaptation is just like poorly understood as an art form i think and i think we we have such a again shakespeare is so sacrosanct that we don't ever want to like adapt it because i don't know like i feel like the best version of 12th night is still she's the man right i mean yes like, like yeah let me get channing tatum as duke right like <laughs> so good you know like i i think there's always absolutely like i think the language is really beautiful but i think so many of the points can be made sans that language and i think our r3 process was very eye-opening for me because i think it's the first time i really understood shakespearean language huh right like after doing like a midsummer night's dream and getting some coaching on it and like after doing like a bunch of Shakespeare's and being like, I can, I can fake my way through this, but I don't like understand it. And for me, it's also because English is my third language. Yeah. And so like doing English, but then weird English was like, <laughs> like I kind of don't understand what I'm saying most of the time. And then it wasn't until, you know what it was is I saw Andrew, a clip of Andrew Scott doing the confrontation in Hamlet, right? Mm-hmm. Confronting mm-hmm. Gertrude. And it was the speed, or not the speed, the tempo at which they spoke, the intensity at which they spoke. And I was like, oh my God, I understand everything they're saying, even if I don't get every word. But they're using the word sounds, like the alliterations and the everything to really nail home their points, even if I'm not catching every word. Okay. And then really, that's also what drove home that for me that it's like, oh, there is no subtext. They are saying everything they mean. So like, I can... As an actor, I can like slip in the occasional subtext, but that kind of muddies the meaning now. So what if I say what I mean? And so when I approached that rehearsal process, I was like, you know what? I'm going to worry less about like what or why I'm saying. I'm just going to focus on the words real quick. 
And suddenly that unlocked a whole world for me. So it took, because I didn't really have that same formal like Shakespearean training, which was also keeping me from getting in the rooms to get that training, right? Like it took maybe seven or eight shows before I really started to unlock and understand Shakespeare, you know, beyond the math. Like I understood the mathematics, I understood scansion, I understood all the components of it, but I didn't understand it all together until like eight shows later. Honestly, I still have moments where I don't understand what's going on. So it's it's just hard. Like yeah. it is, well, we don't give enough credit to that. But we don't, because Shakespeare is both really easy and really difficult mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, because it's when you're like, oh, they're just saying exactly what they mean. But then also there's a technique of saying exactly what they mean. Like it is uh Shakespeare, again, I keep going back to the word sacrosanct. We hold it so sacred that we make it inaccessible. It, I think one the first like key to unlocking it was like I was listening to a friend of mine do the is this a dagger I see before me speech right mm-hmm. and before that I'd always heard like is this a dagger I see before me? you know that like really heightened nonsense and I remember he got to that line and he just went is this a dagger that I see before me it was like the most incredulous thing and I was like oh right if you just speak it normally it makes sense like there's no need to hold on to the antiquated ways that we have performed this because it's not no it's not sacred no theater it's not kabuki where we need to be have that precise representation of what was done historically you know so i was like oh i can just you know and it was even the joke where someone was like what ho right you know no, i was like uh-huh, oh uh-huh. you know that, that classic. <laughs> or what was it is the line i am perfect what right and <laughs> the guy goes i am perfect what <laughs> I was like <laughs> yeah. I was like that's not how that scans but that feels so much better you know and so I was like ah so it was such a slow journey and unlocking all of it and it's one of those things where you don't get that experience unless you're working with people and if you don't have that experience it's hard to get in the door because so many casting directors are like well you need to have an understanding of Shakespearean language and prose and poetry and you know and then when you walk into the room be like it's a dick joke you know what it also is? I recently saw the Daniel Craig Beth on, on Broadway, right? Um, and I had a lot of questions about the production and its its ideas, etc. But I will, because Daniel Craig was such a himbo the whole time, right? <laughs> it was it really felt like Daniel Craig and Ruth Nega as Lady M were a little bit over their heads the whole time, right? They were like, mm-hmm. everything is a little spiraling out of our control, like just out of our control. And you watch them struggling to keep up with it which then justifies their bad decisions because they're kind of panicking. And, but what it was as a result of that lens is that the whole show was funny. Huh. Like all of Mackers was funny. And then what actually ended up happening was then everyone actually laughed at the Porter speech because the Porter was then hilarious. Normally we get to the Porter speech as a palate cleanser and no one laughs because we haven't Uh been laughing the whole time. And everyone, I I watched the actor go, this is supposed to be funny, but we haven't let the audience laugh the whole time. So it's literally like Daniel Craig as Mackers says something and then shoots a look over at Lady M and she's like, oh, and he goes, <laughs> ah, you know, and we laugh with them because like, oh man, this guy is like actually a golden retriever trying to run a country now, you know, and then it gets more and more tragic but you're still like kind of laughing along with them because they're so over their heads. And then as a result, again, the Porter speech was hilarious. It's the most funny I've ever seen the Porter speech, but it's because we were allowed to laugh. And 
all the weird choices of the show aside, like I thought that was his most successful thing is that it was really accessible because now I associated with Mackers, right? I connected with him in a way I haven't before and with Lady M as tragic figures because they were two people, one of whom was a little more ambitious that she could chew on. The other one was just way in over his head, you know? And so I was like, oh, this feels much more normal than Mackers being like a villain who wants power. This is someone who fell into it and then refused to let go. Huh. And so I really appreciated that aspect of it. And I don't think enough Shakespeare approaches it from the more modern lens because they're not, you know what I mean? That the yeah. more human lens. Yeah. I think that like, I hesitate to use the word universal because there's nothing that's like truly universal, but I think there's something in the structure of the stories that is like the falling in love of it, the like human struggle of it that like, Anybody can find something in Shakespeare mm -hmm. that they can sink their teeth into, but then we like elevate it and give it this like hoity toity feeling that then takes that away. Yeah. And like, yeah, when you, when you just connect to the humanity of it from the lens that we look through today, mm -hmm. it makes it so much easier for anybody of today to refine that connecting point. Right. Like, well, which is why, to your point, shows like Taming of the Shrew don't work anymore. No, no. You know, because from a modern lens, we find that whole scenario more reproachable than murder, right? When yeah. we're like, you know what, Lady M, that bitch murdered the king and I'm okay with it. You know, like, as a yeah. point, like we're more okay with someone, with people being baked into pies than we are with spousal, spousal abuse. And, or like the anti-Semitism uh, towards yeah. Shylock, you know what I mean? Like, we're just not into that anymore and so those shows don't work as well because we of a you know we can always pay respect to the time in which those views were quote unquote like understandable and acceptable they no longer are yep and so i don't think we should focus on those shows but again holding on to shakespeare overall as it currently exists is like how do we really cling to that patriarchal white supremacy you know yep yeah. How do we we cling to it as a result of clinging to Shakespeare as Puritan, as like or as purely as we do? Is how I feel about it because there's no room for people like me in Shakespeare when you do it that way. And you can slam a black person in there, but like, if directing is all about managing the statements you make, you know, like when I did Taming of the Shrew, we had a black Petruchio and a white uh, Kate, right? So it's like. What statements are there now mm -hmm. about like the like how do they oppress one another via intersectionality of race and gender of patriarchal norms? We are I think the character's name is Batista, right? Batista's like uh -huh. Kate's father was we we cast a woman there, and so now is it about how do women further oppression to other women, etc. You know, like you have to simply recasting means you have a new bunch of statements to navigate, mm -hmm. which makes it really really difficult. You look at the you know, I, I mentioned Sarah Porkolov earlier, the 1776, right? Where it's like, it's all women and non-binary folk of color. And we're like, cool. That doesn't change the fact that these are slave owners. And it doesn't change the fact that like, someone's got to sing molasses to rum to make a historical white person look good. You know, we're looking at like the closing of K-pop, the potential closing of Ain't No Mo, right? Where it's like, these are shows of color that are just not selling well on Broadway. Like, which like kind of mind-boggling because that's the place you would think they would sell well 
like... You think so, but now that I moved here, you know, and realizing that most of the Broadway audiences are tourists from the Midwest, <laughs> like it's a lot of white people coming in to see shows. You yeah. know, I was just I was just talking with my bestie Ezra about uh, a show at Signature, whose name I can't remember, where it's like, look at these amazing drag for like old white audiences, you know, and it's like, wow, like these drag performances are being met with crickets. As opposed to, you know, with a, if you attend to any other drag performance, it's people like screaming and hawing yes, and cheering, yes. you know, it's a, like, have you ever looked up Dominique Morisot's agreements for theater? No. I, to anyone listening, I recommend looking them up because it's like theater is church. Like you gotta, if you need, to, if the spirit moves you and you need to hoot and holler, you do it. Like, but we think about even our, even our white friends who have laughed inappro- inappropriately in theater, right? getting shushed by older white patrons where it's like what is this it's so dumb and i watched i watched the last 15 minutes of k-pop they leave they live streamed it yesterday oh cool it was electric it's like people were screaming through the performances but you could still hear the performance and oh i would die to be a performer in that setting right oh i saw the preview of ain't no mo uh and when they had the church scene at the beginning, people literally jumped out of their seats to oh, dance wildly in the yes. aisles, which like we were cheering for. But I saw some white folk in the audience who were like, this feels inappropriate, you know, like who were <laughs> yes. like had that per- like pearl clutch moment. And so like uh, all this to say that like there are so many barriers to getting specifically Asians, but all people of color shows, you know, and people of color, Shakespeare, any of the above. Because I feel like the, okay, so you know what it is? It's, um, I think people who see them are like, oh, I'm supporting Black Talk people. I'm so great. You know, and they pat themselves on the back instead of then pushing for further institutional change. You know, um, I was thinking about uh, the Raisin in the Sun here at the public. And they have a moment at the end where they move to Clyburn Park and they reveal the front of the building that they moved to and it has the n-word written across it you know which is the stark reality of that situation but the thing i hate the most is when i hear white audiences go oh you know because it's like oh you have done the thing we we have told you to do we have trained you to feel guilty in this moment now you will go home and do nothing about it (laughs) and so like i think you know it's there's so much of it is also like training our audiences to be more accepting of BIPOC-led shows. Uh, And I think also training them to know that even a mediocre BIPOC show is worth supporting because you are, you are, we have lived through so many mediocre and subpar white shows. Why not allow some subpar and, you know, mediocre BIPOC shows through? Because I got to tell you as a, as an artist of color, when I see a mediocre show of color, my first thought is I can do better which is more inspiring than seeing a great show and going, oh, I want to do that. Like I get more inspired out of spite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I think it would be very interesting because BC in particular has not done a very good job of cultivating its its Asian uh, talent pool, Uh, particularly with all the whitewashing that had occurred. You know, there was so much whitewashing. There was a lot of yellow face. There was a lot of Orientalism. And then I noted before I moved up, I was yelling at Roundhouse about Great Leap and how they cast all the Asian roles from out of town. And I was like, there is no cultivation of Asian talent occurring here. So like, 
it's that vicious cycle of where people are like, where are the Asian talent? I'm like, well, we've all moved away for better opportunities where people will actually see us and take the time to train us and give that, that chance to improve to whatever supposed standard people are placing on us. And so we've all moved away. We're not all of us. Are like, cheers to you all who are still in DC making it work, you know, but like people go where the opportunities are. I remember I was asked to help cast Aubergine by Julia Cho and they were looking for the old Asian man roles. And I was like, you got one person, you got Uncle Al who has, uh, you know, may his memory be a blessing, you know, but uh, everyone else left to pursue opportunities. So after decades of not cultivating the talent pool, there are no Asian actors of a certain age wow. range. Mm -hmm. The next, the like you have Twee and Regina and like Steve Lee and Stan Kang in that field, but they all busy, they all book. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then the, after that, I think it's like me. And then I'm gone. So you have like Liz Ong in it and Liz, Liz is in Hawaii Liz is gone. Now, right? Yep. So like <laughs> you have like Andrew Kilpa and any of the youngins, but there are no actors over a certain age to play those roles in DC because DC has spent so long not cultivating that talent. And in fact, actively casting white people in those roles. Hmm. So like if DC is to rebuild its trust in the Asian community, they need to actively cultivate the people they have there. And just hoping they do but like i can't think like it's really like regina and Twee, you know who are being lauded and they're equity so you can't even cast them at the non-equity level you know yeah. so like so i don't know if any dc folks are listening you really got to cultivate who you have left and make sure that you're inviting new people in instead of hiring from out of town like you just got to do it and you got to give those people the opportunities and you have the absolute responsibility to grow them now Otherwise, you're just not going to have any Asian talent. And the next time you want to do Samurai Macbeth or whatever, you can't. <laughs> Amen. Uh, yeah. I guess with that in mind, cultivating the community, are there any Shakespeare plays or roles you would like to see produced with the influence of your community specifically, AAPI communities in general? I mean, that's the thing, aside from the ones I just don't want to see done in general, um, any of them work because they're not European specific stories. Dramaturgically they are, but the themes behind them, they're not European stories. You know, when we talk about universality, there's there's a lot of commonality, if not universality, that anyone can hook into. And, you know, I, I keep thinking about that ham where it's like, you know, I think we've got to adopt, adapt it, you know, if we want to make it like, what is it? Uh, have you seen Peerless? No. You read Peerless. It's what if Mackers and Lady M were both two high school Asian girls? Oh, hell yeah. Right? And I think it's a phenomenal adaptation of Mackers. Um, because it's like, it's the cutthroatness of Mackers. It's the what you do to succeed. How does, like, do you ever get consumed by your own ambition? But it's two high school girls, you oh. know? And they're Asian. And that has a little bit to do with it because of, you know, their upbringing and like the immense desire to succeed academically. So, but it's a really fantastic adaptation. So I think more adaptations of Shakespeare. And if we're going to do traditional Shakespeare, fuck, I don't want to see a single white person there, you know? Amen. Yeah. I mean, I've seen plenty of Shakespeare where everyone has been white, unfortunately. So yeah. And I, I, I do appreciate the greater pushes for diversity overall. I do. Um, but I think we can do better. And I think we can especially do better by our Asian American talent. Like, you know, I've seen I've seen Dylan do a bunch of shows, Dylan Ardondo, and I'm like, hey, 
That's fantastic. Dylan's phenomenal. Keep casting Dylan. He uh, is phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, he's also not the only one. Yes. And yes. they will continue to diminish if we only focus on the one or two tokens. Yes. Yes. Amen. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, before we wrap up, do you have anything else you would like to add? I don't know. I feel like I've been talking a lot. <laughs> I, like I appreciate lot. it. Oh, I love your ramblings. I I was nervous to ask you to be on the show for some reason. You've been, I don't know. You've been on my mind for like weeks and weeks, but <laughs> I'm I'm glad that a, a ghosted interviewee uh <laughs> kind of well, forced my hand and i asked you i'm glad too a lot of people apparently find me intimidating and that's funny to me um <laughs> so i'm please don't ever find me intimidating I, I like to think i'm actually very approachable no you are i it's not even an intimidation thing i don't i don't know why my brain was like i don't think john john would do it but you did i'm very glad yeah. you were like you were like one of my fastest yeses so <laughs> Yeah. I don't know where my brain came up with that, but oh no, I love your work and I'm happy to support it. And I'm happy to be on this podcast talking about justice. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm so glad that you were on. I think the conversation we just had is incredibly valuable. I'm excited for people to hear it. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, John John. Thank you for having me, and I, I look forward to hearing this when it goes live. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow John John and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe. And tune in next week when we talk to Riley Turner about how the Shakespeare industry can do better by women. Until then, bye all. A thousand thousand sighs to save Oh, lay me where sad true lover Never find my grave to weep there